You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and it's a pretty unusual show this week in that it is audio of an interview with a legendary American comedian uh, that I was asked to interview at South by Southwest, fabulous uh, comedy, tech, music and gaming and film festival in Austin, Texas. Now, this isn't technically an episode of the Comedian's Comedian podcast, but we, I mean, You'll listen to it, you'll find it very much along the sorts of themes that interest us. So I'm going to let this one straight through. There'll be no middle blurb, there might be an ad in the middle, but no no chat from me. We're going to bash straight through this, it's an hour and something, and uh, and then I'll talk to you again at the end. This is Kathy Griffin, who will be familiar to every single American listener, maybe less familiar uh, to people in the UK, unless you're specifically within her fan base. But she is a multiple award-winning comedian. She is a Guinness World Record holder for most comedy specials. She has 23 comedy specials to her name. Uh, I believe she has two Emmys and a Grammy. And in May 2017, Kathy Griffin achieved a new level of fame, notoriety, scandal, when she released a promotional photograph of her holding aloft the, not real, the, the fake severed head of President Donald Trump. This set in motion a chain of events for which she was quite unprepared, and she is going to talk to us now at some length about the ramifications about uh, the immediate aftermath, the effect on her emotionally, about what it felt like to be bullied by the machinery of government, to be placed on the no-fly list, uh, to have Donald Trump and his cohorts uh, invoke the Department of Justice, the Secret Service, and to see her charged, or to see her investigated for, not charged, investigated for conspiracy to assassinate the president. Uh, Anyone working in comedy with strong views about comedy and free speech, uh, the First Amendment in in the US and the free speech ramifications around the world, will be fascinated to hear this insider perspective on exactly what it feels like to be at the very epicentre 
of that kind of investigation. She has survived it. She is thriving. She is, as you will hear, an incredibly powerful woman. And she has spent the last year and a half recovering, coping, dealing with lawyers, spending a fortune on uh, uh, legal protection and touring a comedy show about the experience outside of the US. I believe she was routinely performing for between three and three hour, 40 minutes on that tour show. She is now back promoting and selling a movie uh, that is a, like a tour movie that contains material from that tour and uh, the expression of her circumstances. And it's a, a brilliant movie. She was at South by Southwest in order to meet up with distributors. And believe me, this woman can hustle. We can all take a leaf out of Kathy Griffin's book uh, if we're working in any kind of creative arts or business in general. She is indefatigable and uh, utterly unafraid to hustle and to ask for what she deserves and what she feels should happen next. She's an absolutely breathtaking presence and I was thrilled to sit down with her for this conversation. This is Kathy Griffin. So my bad. I completely apologize for making you guys wait. Sorry. But it uh, it really worked as a sort of means of juicing them up. Which yes, is... and also tell people I was like wasted and late, and I beat up my assistant, make it you know gin it up a little. Let's get right to it. Why don't yeah. we start with uh, the events of May 2017 and. Uh... May 30. 2017, the night that changed my life forever. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so no shit. I, I just came from this like super highfalutin party, put it on by Axios, and it was all these like web people. And then some woman goes, "I used to work for the Obama administration." I'm like, "Holy shit balls!" So anyway, they were talking about you know social media and everything because I take a social media beatdown, like I'm sure everybody does at this point. But they were basically saying that they can't talk that fuckerberg and that piece of shit Jack Dorsey into regulating. So honestly, even though I'm a free speech advocate, they got to regulate that shit. Like, it's too, too fucking scary with the social media. So anyway, that's one of the ways that my photo of a Donald Trump Halloween mask with ketchup on it. Not a head. No one's head. I do not have a basement of heads. I didn't go to the head mall. It was not a head. But, you know, that just took off. And so they were, you know, threw me sort of into the memosphere. And it went worldwide. Like, honestly, within an hour. So all over the world, people think I'm in ISIS. Oh, you gotta laugh. Oh, you know what my joke is? And it's, it took me like a year to get this place emotionally. When people confront me and go, go back to Raqqa, you're in ISIS, you fucking cunt. And I go, oh, I just work at the gift shop for like a week. <laughs> diffuse, you gotta diffuse sometimes, diffuse. Let's... There is so much, there's so much to talk about. The ramifications of this are enormous, that the machinery of government has been brought to it's bear. It's historic. It's historic. Never in the history of this great country has a sitting United States president used the full power of the Oval, the First Family, the right-wing media, and the Department of Justice to try to decimate a comedian, much less a private citizen. So I was under a federal investigation for two months by two federal agencies. So the day after the photo, I didn't like have the opportunity to you know, talk to the Secret Service and say, oh, I'm a comic and I was outrageous. Because once, once Orange Dumbass tweeted, and then the fucking piece of shit wife... And then those horrible inbred kids. Um, and, 
you on the phone with your mom on speaker? I was just live tweeting that. <laughs> I'm like, talk to you later, mom. Um, so anyway, that's like kind of one of the things I want to tell you guys is it, if it happened to me, it can happen to you. So they put me on the no-fly list immediately, like a terrorist. Oh, yes. So then the lawyer bills start mounting. So one thing I want to say to any of you comics or aspiring comics, save your money. Save your money for a rainy day because I had a monsoon. And so I had to hire an amazing attorney because this was serious business. And um, they were considering, they had an open investigation and they were considering charging me with, get ready, conspiracy to assassinate the president of the United States, (laughs) which holds a lifetime sentence. So that didn't even happen to Lenny Bruce. Like his issues were with local PD. And even my pal Jane Fonda, her because I called her because I wanted to make sure I was being correct when I said, Am I the first one? And I met with a bunch of other First Amendment attorneys. And even Fonda said, No, I was bothered by the local police departments and stuff. So, um, you know, I had to uh, testify under oath. And that was really scary. And um, then when I was exonerated, I couldn't get any work here. And I still can't. I don't have one single day of paid work ahead of me the rest of my life. And I want to be honest with you guys because that's the deal. So, um, you know, I've had to kind of change my whole business model and learn a different way to market my own shows so I don't use a promoter anymore for tours. And I can walk you guys through that because the promoters hate that. Um, <laughs> it was really fun to learn. And I had to learn, like, a whole new skill set. And now I'm, a, I'm just a different artist than I was before that picture. Like, I was in the middle of a 50-city tour, and in 24 hours, the remaining 25 cities were canceled because every theater got a death threat. Multiple death threats. And they're used to doing, like, Blue Man Group and Mamma Mia, right? So all of a sudden, they're like, old-timey voicemail machine is like, I'm going to kill that fucking cunt. I'm going to shoot her and then decapitate her. Oh, let's cancel that show. So I don't really blame the theater owners, but in the course of the last year and 10 months, I've learned a lot. And one of the things I learned is that those were robocalls. I know, wah, wah. And um, also learning, like, all this stuff, like, you know, um, David Pecker, that piece of shit. He's already flipped. So AMI, um, they don't just own the Globe and the Inquirer. They also acquired, um, probably with Saudi money, I don't know, but it looks like it. And um, I know, right, Kush? I wouldn't trust that fucking guy as far as I could send him to a facial. And um, he has too many facials. Too many facials. It's weird. Weird skin. He's, like, soft like a baby's ass. He's not sexy. Anyway... Um, so, the, so AMI also owns um, Life and Style, In Touch, OK Magazine. And in our business, people think that's the fucking newspaper. So when they started running stories about me, saying, you know, I had lupus or I was bald because I had shaved my head in solidarity with my sister when she got cancer, you know, I became unemployable because of the president because I aggrieved him. And by the way, I've known this guy for like 25 years. He actually hired me one time to roast him. So he totally knew my shtick and my brand, and he's just a piece of shit. And he, I just want to say, one time I um, touched his hair twice, and he didn't feel it. <laughs> Before... Before we get on to the before we get on to the details, and there's a huge amount to unpack, I want to just ask you a little bit further, just dig a bit deeper about the image. I heard the story of what had happened to you before over in the UK before I saw the image. What did and, you hear? I'm curious. Well, I, I heard that I heard that you had tweeted an image of holding the president's head, the severed head. Severed head, head yeah. And uh, and I heard about the the fallout. And right. then when I eventually came to see, I, I thought, my God, that's outrageous. I saw the image and I went, Oh, I get it. Do you know what I mean? Because. <laughs> The image is so stark yeah. and so deliberate. You yeah. are holding... I mean, it is, it's a mask, but it is a... It's, it's like gory. It makes you... Jesus Christ. And you're, fa- you're not smiling. That's it right. doesn't look like a, a funny, tall Animated promo. Animated, crazy Kathy, yes. You are looking straight down the barrel, completely serious. Yeah. 
Did you know at the time that you shot the image that you were, you must have known you would provoke the Donald? No! I thought it would be like on gay blogs for two days. And also, first of all, Let- I, I did it in response to, even though I hate that piece of shit, Megyn Kelly, and she wouldn't piss on me if I were on fire, I did it in response to, after one of the debates, remember when Trump goes, there was blood coming out of her eyes. Blood coming out of her wherever. So it was no deeper than that. I thought, let's have him with blood coming out of his wherever and see if he likes it. Well, he didn't. Well, to look to at look all. at the image, it, I think anyone who's seen the image and everyone's gory. seen. Well, it's gory. not it's not simply the gory nature of the image. It's the fact that as I, I feel, it holds the same cultural weight mm-hmm. as when you see a picture of someone burning a flag. Mm-hmm. You know, it has the same yes. kind of oh my god, which is legal factor. Sure, that was a big <laughs> legal battle, which you can burn a flag. So. You, when you put it out there, like if it was any other president, I, I would imagine you could think, hey, look, obviously this is just a joke. Mm-hmm. You know how capricious yeah. Trump is. Yes. You must have, surely you knew on some sense, and it's gonna, he's not going to never see it. You can imagine he's going to see it. What reaction did you imagine he was going to get? I honestly, I didn't think that he would personally see it. Seriously, because we've never had a president that like goes after comedians or certainly tweets about them and then engages. Like, can you imagine Sasha and Malia? calling for me to be decimated. And so, I miss them, you guys. I miss them so much. Can they start Monday? President Sasha, President Malia, either one. I don't care which one. But also, I did it in response to the eight years of those of us lefties, and I'm a lefty and a Democrat and a proud Democrat. I always have been. You know, we saw eight years of images of Obama being lynched and images of people saying that they were going to shoot him, Ted Nugent. And then when the Secret Service called him, he goes, I'm going to double down and I'd shoot him again. That fucker goes to the White House with fucking orange dumbass and they take a picture together. So I thought, well, where's our comeback? You know, we've seen pictures of Obama going around Facebook with like a monkey on his head and all this other racist shit. So I, first of all, I think Trump has it coming. I don't mean decapitation, but the shaming. I like to shame him because that's all he responds to. He's very thin skin, very thin skin. He's orange, but it's thin and orange. So, so I did. I wanted to make a statement, honestly. And there is, as you guys know, there's a history in comedy where a lot of comedians will make a political statement now and again, you know, and some of the greats get in trouble and you know, Carlin and Pryor and all that stuff. So it's really not off-brand for a, com- for a comic to go for a president. But, you know, I'm 58 years old, and I remember watching the Watergate hearings as a kid, and I just never thought anything like this would happen in my lifetime. So, I mean, I remember being just riveted to watching, like, that John Dean testimony and stuff. I was, like, a freaky kid. I didn't watch, like, cartoons. But anyway, um, <laughs> this is so much worse. And I thought, okay, I don't know if you want to consider it a joke or a statement, but I purposely had the stoic look on my face because I thought, well, I don't want people to think I'm really going to decapitate anybody. So um, I think it didn't help, by the way. In my mind, I thought, oh, I'll look so opposite of my normal animated crazy self. And I purposely wore like this high collar dress. Normally, you know, I'm showing my pups. And I, I, like, I really thought people would be like, oh, Kathy's pushing the envelope. I thought it was being edgy. Like, I thought it was going to be on the cover of, like, Der Spiegel or some shit. I didn't know the photographer was going to send it to TMZ or Harvey Levin, that piece of shit, gay Republican, right? He's one of those log cabins. And he talks to, yes, fuck him. And he, he talks to Trump, like, multiple times a week. And he finally confessed that to the Daily Beast about seven months after the photo. So imagine how far down we've gone. And I'm supposed to be the one on the fucking no-fly list? The president is calling Harvey Levin for policy advice. On TMZ! What the fuck? So, so let's talk about 
Let's talk about the, the immediate fallout. Let's talk okay. about the first 24 hours. Oh, it was a, just a nightmare. So um, I, you know, all, every, um, I, every show that was canceled was being reported in real time on TMZ, which was really weird. Like, they would post it at the same time I heard. And theaters are dropping out. And, you know, like I said, I don't blame the theater owners. That's got to be a scary thing. And the threats were all very consistent. They wanted to um, cut my head off, shoot me in the cunt, put my decapitated head up my cunt, and shoot me again. <laughs> Um, the Trumpers are very monolithic in that way. They have one way of wanting to kill you, and they really stick to it. And, um, I mean, and you're, you're, able, you're able to describe that now with humor, but when oh, they first no started then. coming in... Yeah, I mean, when you lose your life overnight, and I really did, because I'm just a workhorse, you know? My, my, I don't know if anybody saw the doc about Joan Rivers, a piece of work, but, you know, I just loved her, and she was a good pal, and there's a scene where she has an, an empty, like, day planner, right? And I'm, like, old-timey. I still have a day planner, and she, w- she showed empty pages, and she said, this is my worst nightmare. So for me, to be out of work overnight, when I knew I had not violated the First Amendment, I didn't know how much repercussions I was going to suffer, but the first 24 hours were really tough because everybody turned on me, you guys, left, right, and center. Fucking Alyssa Milano. <laughs> like, I need that shit. And you know what I do? Sometimes I confront him. Uh, so Alyssa Milano, who I don't really know, she DMs me because she wants, to, wants me to give money for some uh, candidate. And I go, uh, by the way, where's the apology, bitch? You fucking came after me for a picture. And then she writes back like, I hurt you, so what? You want to come to the event? I go, no, bitch. And so I'm going to fight with her. So you... But we, but we are all part of the resistance, so that was just me being a petty asshole. The truth is, we have to stick together because united we stand, divided we fall. And when you, when you say... When you say that you knew you hadn't violated the First Amendment, yeah, right. had, you, had you taken le- at what point did you take legal advice? If it was a sort Before of a spare of the moment. It. Okay. Before I posted it. Yes, I'm not crazy. I've been pushing the envelope. I mean, my First Amendment attorney is the real guy in the movie The People vs. Larry Flint. I got the real fucking guy. He's still alive. And so, yeah, I don't care how old he is. If you've won a Supreme Court case unanimously, uh, the landmark case Jerry Falwell versus Hustler magazine, you need that fucking guy. Like, when you're in trouble, you want that guy. And um, I had run it by him before I posted it, and another, my, uh, an- just another attorney, and they both said, yeah, you can post it. It doesn't violate the First Amendment, and it doesn't. So a lot of the smear campaign has been a lot of the right-wingers, and now I know them all. Like, I know all the Nazis. Oh, you guys, remember the crying Nazi from Charlottesville? Okay, his name is Chris Cartwell. So anyway, I, I'm on like a mission to get all thousand of those guys like somehow, you know, arrested or shine the fucking light on them. So one time um, he put his phone number online because he was so sad. And I called him. I'm like, it's Kathy Griffin, bitch. How you like me now, motherfucker? Like, it just, it's crazy. I admit I'm insane. I admit I'm happily insane. So let's, let's go back to that. The first... I'm not working, but I'm happy to be here. The first first 24 hours. I I want to look specifically at that, because what you have managed to do, and the reason you're here at South By Mm -hmm. is to promote the... is to launch the movie, which we saw this morning, the documentary of your... the tour. So before we get into that, I want to talk about that, the first 24 hours and the emotional impact upon you, someone who professionally... whose job for years has been to work out where the line is, go right up to the line Mm -hmm. and not cross it, Mm -hmm. when you realised that this time maybe you'd cross the line. Yeah, and also that's, you know, negotiable. 
negotiable. Like seriously, they change the goalposts, the goalposts as they say all the time. But the first day was really rough because I got a lot of very rough calls. Like really, I'd say like 75% of my friends just deserted me and my representatives and... You know, and are, these, just, are these friend friends or showbiz friends? No, they were showbiz the phonies. Okay. And so now I know. <laughs> um, uh, and a, few, a couple people rose to the occasion, and that was really helpful and affirming. And I talk about that in the movie. But most people were just like, I don't want anything to do with her. And, you know, that was rough. Like, people you think you know or you think will get it. But, um, and I, look, I loved Al Franken as a senator. I had many fundraisers for him at my home. But, you know, he called me that day and said, I can't associated with you, Kathy. And I was going to host two book events for him. And I just started crying. Like, I just handed the phone to my boyfriend. I was like, I can't. It's just too painful. But, you know, he's an elected. I get it. Um, so it was, it was a really, like, roller coaster of emotions. And Anderson Cooper did a tweet that was, let's just say, not helpful. And that was hard because he, to me, was like the guy that I thought, you know, you think if you're, like, at a party and for some reason, I don't know, something isn't going your way, and you're like, okay, that guy in the room will have my back. Well, I was wrong. And, you know, working through that stuff, that was emotional. And I just was, I mean, I just sobbed. And, like, then the FBI started calling because I was under so many credible threats. And, in fact, ironically, the day that I filmed the movie, the FBI came to my house and they did a no-knock. And what I've learned, I'm like, I could join the agency. Um, <laughs> and there's all these levels of credible threats. So... I now have gotten so many that if they call my lawyer, it's like a, eh, a little bit of a threat. They want to let me know. If they call me personally, that means they're, there's something more specific they want me to know. That day, they came over without even calling. So that's an imminent threat. And so um, I was in my pajamas, and every time the FBI comes over, they never laugh, but I go like this, Norm, like from Cheers, and um, <laughs> where everybody knows your name. You know, they're very comfortable in my foyer. And, um, and they've actually been very helpful. Like, honestly, I think they may have saved my life. Um, and so they read me this letter called A Duty to Warn. And I said, okay, can, what can you tell me? And they said, you know, the MAGA bomber, Cesar Sayek. And I said, yes. And they had already called me to say I was on his list like two weeks prior. So as they were interrogating him, they said, well, we're here to tell you, Ms. Griffin, that we found out that he shared his list with like-minded people. And I said, okay, well, how many? And they said, we can't tell you. And I said, why are you here today? I have a performance tonight. And by the way, by this time, I was promoting my own shows. So I learned how to hire the ushers, the concessions, you know, everything. I learned how to do all that stuff, get the insurance for each venue, which venues cannot cancel because of death threats, which venues can. Uh, yeah, I mean, believe it or not, that's my freaking new normal. And so I said, should I be worried about my performance tonight? And they said, we can't say. And I go, well, what advice do you have? And they said, when you open your mailbox, make sure you're 10 feet away from it. <laughs> like, like, I'm going to get that grabber from As Seen on TV with the old lady. And, and then MacGyver it and just, you know, like, try. it's not practical. I, I open it and I go, kaboom. Like, I just try to emotionally go, kaboom, and I just take out the mail. To have your, your details shared by the MAGA bomber to like-minded people. I yeah. mean, that is a genuine... That's not just a credible threat. That is horrifying. That's the well, sort of thing anyone in this room would run screaming from. Right. And by the way, remember, these like-minded people are not under investigation. I'm the one that was on the no-fly list. So my whole attitude has been like, why don't you shift your focus away from the annoying redhead and onto the like-minded people? Because those are the really <laughs> scary ones. And I also... Another reason I made the film, and I loved doing the world tour, because God knows I couldn't get a gig here, but boy, did I do well overseas. Antwerp, Stockholm, Reykjavik, Iceland. Oh, they're everywhere you go. They're like, what the fuck are you people doing? So I tell them. I go, there's gerrymandering, and he's a crazy person, and 
let's let's talk about how you coped with the fear in the immediate aftermath. Did did anyone in the comedy community support you? Yeah, I, very few people, but I will say that um, one, I got two pivotal calls that day. I got a lot of calls from people. Oh, oh, get this shit. So I also had this horrible publicist named Cindy Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R. And she works for this company called PMK. And she wasn't even my publicist anymore. And so after the photo went up and then I became breaking news and all the breaking news stickers said, Kathy Griffin joins ISIS and chops off Donald Trump's head. Now, I'm not a surgeon, but I don't see how anyone, if you think that through, thought I could, you know, break into the White House, chop off the president's head, fly back to my house in Bel Air, take a picture, and then sneak back into the White House and sew it back onto his chins. So, you know, I had to just deal with the crazy shit that these people believe. Remember, these are the people that think Hillary Clinton was running a sex ring out of the basement of Comet Pizza until a guy went with a gun and shot it up, and they don't even have a basement. So, you know, that's how nuts it is. So I, um, you know, I I got a really impactful call from uh, Jamie Foxx, which meant a lot because I don't really know him that well. But yeah, that was really cool of him. Like, he tracked me down, found me, and, you know, I got a lot of calls from comics, too, saying, oh, I made this horrible apology video, by the way. And it's a shit fest. You should watch it. And the press conference was even worse. How how soon after the event, how soon after, at what point did you make the apology? Um, that day. And um, I made it because, you know, I have done a lot of work with veterans and I've actually performed, like, in war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan, Kuwait, Uzbekistan, Walter Reed Medical Center, etc. And so I, I lost all the vet. I lost everybody, you know? Like, I know that th- I'm Hanoi Jane. This photo will follow me forever. So I, there's certain cities I'll probably never play again. I, I don't know if I can ever do casinos again because that's like kind of a MAGA crowd. So, um, you know, got to be careful. And, um, you know, it just doesn't feel like even just a few years ago where if people had political differences, it just kind of didn't come up, you know, or it was fair game in comedy. I miss the good old days with Bill Clinton where you could make a joke about some jizz on a gap dress and everybody would laugh. <laughs> oh, the innocence. So the whole, you know, I mean, you guys were all living it. The whole, it's a very odd time for comedy, as you know. We're all walking that sort of very fine line between what's newly offensive, and yet it might be refreshing to hear some honesty, but you also don't want to legitimately frighten people. So I made the apology video because I honestly thought of Daniel Pearl's mother. And my good friend Rosie O'Donnell, the expert at being trolled by Donald Trump, like she is the pro at it. And she said to me, what if Daniel Pearl's mother saw this? And I thought, oh, God. And that's why I made the apology. And it was just a mess. And then Cindy Berger is going, back to one, do another one. Your makeup was wrong. And I'm like, what? I have no makeup on. I'm crying. So then I got a beat down for, like, the embarrassing apology video. Then I got Lisa Bloom. There's this attorney, and she's horrible. Her name is Lisa Bloom. And she acts like a... And she acts like a feminist, but she's not. She just wants to pay out. And so then I had a press conference, which turned out to be like an infomercial for her. And it was all right-wing media. So, I mean, it was all like the gateway pundit. I've learned, I've learned all these nut jobs, right? So, like, Andrew Breitbart would come after me when he was alive. And he's not dead enough, as far as I'm concerned. And then Steve Bannon took it over, who's like fucking Walter White doing meth in the corner. I don't know what that... Allegedly. Allegedly. I have no proof. 
And so I've, I've become, unfortunately, very familiar with the right-wing media and the idea that our president called into Alex Jones and he's now sort of legitimized is how this has gotten so out of hand. Had you ever apologized before for any piece of your, no, for any part of your comedy? No, outcome? suck it. No. No. So how did it feel? Did it feel like the right decision as you were on TV no, apologizing? it didn't feel it right. It didn't feel I, right. I admit it. It didn't feel right. Like, I know this sounds silly, but I, I should have just, like, somehow found a way to, like, reach out to freaking Daniel Pearl's mother and apologize by letter or something. But, you know, it's not what we do. And I believe strongly that you shouldn't apologize for jokes. Now, in my real life, I apologize all the time for fucked up stuff I do. But on stage, honestly, I'm just trying to make you guys laugh. And I'm sure that comics that are here, that's, that's our first and foremost job, funny first. And it didn't feel natural, and I totally rescind that apology. Because now that we see the policies that Trump has put into place... It's refreshing having a few people come up to me and say, oh, well, I was offended at the time, but now that I see the stuff Trump is doing, Muslim ban, et cetera, um, rolling back rights for certainly trans people first. But by the way, gays, get ready. You're next. So I kind of am wanting it because you know how the gays are like fucking mafia up. So I kind of wanted to go for the gays because he doesn't know that you guys are fucking have uniforms or lockstep and shit and will cut his balls off. But um, <laughs> metaphorically, metaphorically, yeah, verbally, I was say, metaphorically, we, that is not a threat of any way. Are we, are we to assume now that you are so well versed in your First Amendment rights that everything you say, you know, you're, you're constantly checking? This is, and let me tell you, um, and I do, I actually, um, oh, I also opened a merch store on my <laughs> website and I make tens of dollars a day. Um, <laughs> So my biggest seller is a fuck Trump mug, a coffee mug, and Bob De Niro bought one. I know. So I'm trying to get him to see if he'll do a picture of him like holding it, but he gets like an online beatdown too. But um, I know I'm doing something right if Bob De Niro's holding a fuck Trump mug. So uh, I sell First Amendment t-shirts because a lot of people don't know what the First Amendment is. And that is, like I said, that's our commodity. And a lot of people, even in the comedy world, thought I had broken or violated the First Amendment. So, you know, I've been wearing the T-shirt a lot around the festival and stuff, and it's important that people know it does affect everybody. So my story shouldn't be like a Hollywood story because people are affected by um, the stripping of the First Amendment in every way. Because remember, it's freedom of assembly. So at the inaugural, the, um, that fake inaugural, there were more protesters arrested than any inaugural in history. And these are people that just have, have signs. And, you know, our team is, like, pretty peaceful. Oh, you know what else I learned? You know that group Antifa? It's like seven bros. <laughs> you know how the right wing always acts like Antifa's coming and they've got caravans of Mexicans? No, it's like seven guys. Like there's, And a lot of times the Nazis dress up as Antifa, like that horrible homosexual Milo Yiannopoulos. Like they'll do fucked up shit like that. I had to learn all that crazy shit that they do. They spend time making Antifa outfits at home. <laughs> I'm too busy we- for that. We were talking about the comedy community and their yes. reaction. So you, Rosie O'Donnell was on your side. And Rosie Jim, was Jim on Carey, my side. Jim Carrey called, and that meant a lot. Because I just, I think of him as someone who has really kind of, you know, he, he's, he's achieved every milestone that you can in comedy. I mean, I met him first as a stand-up, and he was only doing impressions. And I don't know him very well. Like, I, I took one class with him way back in the day, and then he just got super famous. But I was also re- really honored that he tracked me down. I, I don't know if I'm in, like, the white pages of the phone book or what, but <laughs> I guess so. Nope, nope, doesn't matter. But anyway, um, you know, because he's done everything from, you know, be such a standout on Living Color, and then the Ace Ventura franchise, and then become such an amazing 
serious actor and Man on the Moon, etc. Great specials. And so I was, you know, sobbing and just a wreck. And I just said, Jim, you know, I'm, I'm a big girl. I can take it. But I need someone like you to be really honest with me at this moment because the walls of shit have fallen on me and I don't know what's real and what isn't. And um, I said, so just, I can take it. You can tell me, is it over for me? Because if you tell me it's over, I will somehow figure out a way to go on with that knowledge. And don't be afraid to be brutal. And he said, Kathy, today, you're the most famous comedian in the world. (laughs) And I go, all the wrong ways. (laughs) And then he said this thing that was like, I'm going to brag and I'm going to sound like an asshole, but I got to quote him because it was such a good uh, compliment. He goes, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take the time. You're going to process it. You're going to put it through your Kathy Griffin comedy prism. I have a prism. (laughs) I had no idea. And he goes, and then you're going to get out there and you're going to tell the story and make it funny and relatable. So I had that edict from him, and that's what I started. I started writing, like, pretty much that day. Because the threats online were so insane that I have to admit some of them were funny. Like, some of them were... So over the top. And um, I thought someday this is going to somehow be part of the act. And also, it's like all people want to talk to me about now. So I thought, yeah, lean in. You know, I leaned in. And, and then I learned a lot. Like, you guys, I started, I have a, a stand-up comedy disorder, which is my shows are like three hours long. I know, and I don't even wear a colostomy bag. Because um, I'm a lady. I'm a lady. All right, um, but the show, the, the tour started out as a two-hour show, and by the end, um, when I was um, renting theaters myself and making 30% more than when Live Nation promoted me. Um, I mean, it's hard work. you got to love it. Like, if, you don't, if you're not, don't dig, like, business shit, but I loved it. I love, like, getting into the fucking weeds and learning and the numbers and T1 access and watching ticket sales. And if I control the loge and I drop the ticket price by $5, I can sell it out. And then I hired a marketing firm from D.C. because I knew L.A. or New York didn't know what to do with me. And it's called Cambridge Analytica. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> They're good. Um, but no, I hired a marketing firm in D.C., and they had this great piece of advice. They said, we're going to treat you like a congressman who's been in a scandal, but he's innocent. And I was like, what? And so what that meant was they taught me how to truly geotarget the fans that would help me build my first mailing list, which I, duh, I should have started fucking 20 years ago. So I have a mailing list and a text list. And the question was really simple. If Kathy Griffin wants to do a concert in your town, will you come? And that's what routed the tour, is the more response I got from the cities that responded the most, I would book the venue. And I also felt really strongly that with this particular show, because some of it's kind of heavy, and, you know, I mean, talking about getting detained at airports, that's like some real shit. But I wanted to put it in there, because I think it's important that people understand they can take your phone and they can take your SIM SIM card. And, you know, being put on the Interpol list was not fun, you I, know. I, I want to get into all of those experiences and the prism of uh, the, the comedy prism of one. Kathy Griffin. Before we move on to that, just to finish this idea of the, the reaction of the comedy community, yeah. why was it, do you think, that so many comedians deserted you? I think they're afraid of Trump, and I think people... I, oh, I'm a verb now. People didn't want to get, get Kathy Griffin. And so, um, I know. And uh, so I actually made some calls to some very famous comedians, and I started saying... 
like how much Trump time are you doing? And I'm not going to name names, but there were several very, very much more famous than I comedians that just said, I just don't do any Trump stuff. Like, I don't need the trouble. I personally consider that a dereliction of duty because in our history as comics, we are known to comment occasionally on things that are so in the zeitgeist, sometimes frightening, but also we have the power to shine a light on something uncomfortable and hopefully make it you know, funny and relatable in some way. So I talked to another very famous comic who said, I do a hot 10 minutes on Trump. I go, 10 minutes? He's the worst president we've ever had. Oh, I just spit. Sorry. That was not in the prism. Not in the prism. Outside the prism. So I was kind of doing my research, and I really found that most, um, even most artists just didn't want to, they certainly didn't want to go through what I went through. But even prior to that, you know, he, he's already been tweeting against people, and nobody wanted to be in that Twittersphere, and his tweets are like a, almost like a television programming tool. Like, he tweets something crazy, and you're on the network news, like not just down a dirty cable, but network. And, and it's not simply the reaction that Trump himself has, but he has the power, which he seems to use frequently, yes. to mobilize Oh, the army. He, legions. He, he knows how to do the dog whistle, and that's what it was. So his tweet became very clear to me. He also got Melanie, his wife. <laughs> Remember when he called her Melanie by mistake one time? Well, now she's Melanie forever. Um, so he got Melanie to tweet, and then um, the children, um, Ivanka, Eddie Munster, and Date Rape, they, um, they twatted as well. And then, of course, all the, like, you know, Fox News. I mean, Fox News is like that Mariah Carey gif where she goes, you're obsessed with me. Like, that's Fox News. They just can't, like, that Judge Janine oh my God, she's a fucking psycho. So um, she like made a special video from her cubicle saying, you know, I should be in prison forever and stuff. So they were very helpful to Trump in per per perpetuating the myth that I had in fact broken the law and truly threatened the life of a president. And I really felt like, you know, when I was under my under oath interrogation, I really did feel like the feds like didn't, I, fe I felt like they like didn't want to be there. I really did. And that's where your taxpayer dollars went, by the way. But I kind of... Okay, I'm going to tell you something I've never said before. All right, this is like sort of chilling, but I just want to tell you guys because I think you'll get it. So at the end of my interrogation, and I didn't put this in the movie because I was too afraid, but at the end of my interrogation, um, it was about two hours long, and because um, I've known Trump for so long, they wanted to go over every single encounter I have ever had with him. And not just the crispy hair. You know, there were many times I had to run into him and his fucking gunt. That is a gut and a cunt combined. All right, um, I'm a wordsmith. I'm a wordsmith. I should be an au pair. Anyway, um, so after the interrogation, number one, I said, am I allowed to speak about this? And they said yes. So that was really refreshing because I was like, oh, this half the act. And um, I mean, it was scary. It was scary. But still, it was like so bizarre, you know, to be in that situation and under oath, like I said. So um, I asked one of the agents um, at the end of the interrogation, I said, you know, I, I don't know your business, obviously, and, and I don't know what you go through every day. I'm, I just tell dick jokes. And um, but I said, I have to be honest, um, this whole process feels personal to me. And because I know the Donald, he likes to be called the Donald, right? That's the weird. Um, <laughs> and I said, you know, I, I can't help but feel like this is personal. And I will never forget that agent just went like this. So you know Trump and Jefferson Beauregard Sessions with his mint julep on the porch after he just blew some boy. Um, <laughs> Concocted a little investigation. So I don't know what that meant, but I thought it was pretty 
Like it even kind of shocked me. Like what did you what did you me. understand that pointing from at the, the top? Gesture. It came from the top. From the it top. came from the oval. And now we know. Like we know how personally involved this fool is, and you know, writing checks to Michael Cohen to pay off Stormy. Oh, I'm having dinner with Stormy Monday. Should we become friends? Yeah. I believe, I believe Stormy's doing a stand-up tour. Yes, yeah, yeah, I'm going to give her stand-up advice because she's doing a stand-up tour. And I was like, well, do it on the pole, honey. Work with what God gave you. And uh, so, yeah, so it actually meant a lot when she came, to, she came to see me at the Schubert in Boston. And she has, like, really, really serious security issues. So we had to kind of, like, sneak her in. And meeting her was one of those, like, cathartic things, right? Because she's really been put through the Trump wood chipper in a big way. And by the way, she's... So cool about it because she says like it wasn't a me too, you know it was it was a trick basically. And but she um, gave me a lot of details about how bad he is in bed, and it's just as bad as you would think. I'm I'm sensing a real need for details in the room. I really don't want to ask. That's a very difficult uh, thing to maneuver. Okay, so she told me she had sucked 180,000 cocks in her life, and she said this was the grossest sexual experience she ever had. <laughs> I know. That girl goes like, oh, like home alone. Oh! Let's. I love her. She's awesome. She's so honest. Let's love say. Her. Let's say for further details, you have to watch the movie because there are further details Please in the do. movie. Yes. Um, just, just put us in the room with you and the FBI during the interrogation. Well, it was the Secret Service and the U.S. Attorney's Office. So it's the the, the FBI was protecting me. Yes. So that they are within the DOJ as well. Okay. But the other agencies uh, were the two that were, um, you know, uh, running the open investigation. So the way it was was if Secret Service found anything that would give them enough to charge me with conspiracy to assassinate the president, the U.S. Attorney's Office, not the Assistant U.S. Attorney's Office, which I accidentally say in the movie, and later on my lawyer was like, what you, why are you downplaying it? It was the U.S. Attorney's Office. I was like, oh, I'm fucked. So anyway, they were ready to, like, prosecute. Like, they were ready to write some shit up, some fucking executive order or whatever. And, and did you have a sense, as they were interrogating you, did you at any point feel like you could say... You, person in the room interrogating me, you don't seriously believe I am conspiring to assassinate the president. Did you have no. the opportunity to say No, that? I did not. I went by the book. I mean, my lawyer and I had murder rooms up the ass. Like, we practiced and practiced and practiced. And he said to me prior to the, to the interrogation, he goes, you know, kid, I love you, but if you fuck this up, you leave in cuffs. So, no, there was no... You know how you, like, you don't joke with the TSA? Like, I'm sure we've all done that once, you know? <laughs> One time I was in Orlando jail. You can go to airport jail if you make a vulgar joke. So I was, like, stuck in Orlando for two hours going, I'm a comic, you know? Anyway, um, so this was a little more serious. So, no, I, I did not want to, you know, try to charm them or make them laugh or even appear harmless. I just wanted to keep it, like, just the facts, ma'am. And they went into great detail. Like I said, it was two hours, so... When you, when you said just then that you were, you, you're able to relate it to us, you know, everyone's made a joke to the TSA once. Yeah. Something that permeates all of your work is that ability to make the situations, the celebrity parties, the, the TV shows that you've worked in, relate to the public in such a way that we all feel like we're your friend and we're your That's champion. That's what I like. I let, like My best compliment is when someone says, I came to one of your shows and I felt like I was in the living room with my best funniest, most obnoxious girlfriend. I'm like, yeah. that's me. So, so when was the first moment then? Was it the phone call with Jim Carrey where you, or, or even sooner than that, you are a comic, you have the instincts of a comic, and we all know if something horrible befalls a comic, yeah. all of their friends who are comedians are thinking, well, there's going to be a show in this. Yeah. So when was the very first moment that you thought you might be able to st strategize, to wield this event? I think when Jim Carrey said something? that, because he was, remember, it was the day of. So I was just He rang you on the day. The day. So, 
I was in the middle of, you know, CNN banning me for life. Like, you know that comedy series they run on CNN? They fucking went back and surgically cut me from every single episode. Like, I don't even exist. Like, I don't have two Emmys and a Grammy. <laughs> I'll wait. So, like, I've, I've learned, like, a lot of people, they if they have an opportunity to be petty and assholes, they'll just go there. So I had to, you know, deal with that, and everybody deals with that. And so I thought, okay, that's a way to make it relatable. So, frankly, the Anderson Cooper story, everybody wants to hear about it because, like I said, everyone has that one friend that you didn't think would turn on you, and it kind of sucks. So I talk about it openly. And, it's, frankly, it's not, like, one of the funnier parts of the movie, but I do feel like, you know, I mean, I've been a bank teller. I've been a waitress. I was actually such a bad waitress they made me a busboy. Um, I was a busboy, thank you. Um, and, you know, we all know that feeling of, like, having to just let off steam. And, like, when I was working at Polly's Pies in Santa Monica, you know, if you had, like, a manager that was just didn't like you or whatever, you know, you go and have a little break in the alley and joke around with your other coworkers. And so there was a lot of that. So I will say immediately I thought, okay, I need to weed out the folks that are just dogpiling me and the ones that are like, you know, just by being a good friend, I want to tell you it's over. And, you know, like I got a lot of that. I was like, you're a great friend. Well, I'll never talk to you again. So it was hard. I lost, like I said, about 75% of my friends and in show business and not in show business. And a lot of them believed the hype. They believed I had broken the law and that I deserved it and I went too far and all this other stuff. So, you know, that's something that I still live with. And my circle has gotten pretty small. But um, I like to I like to work that way, you know. So like when I tour, I don't you know I don't have like a posse, I don't have like a spotter or high. You guys know what a spotter is? Oh my god, Dave Chappelle comes up to me one time and he's like, "Yo, KG, who's your spotter?" I go like when you're having your period, and he goes, <laughs> he goes, "No, you're doing like these big, big, you know, Radio City and stuff. Like who like looks for like a hot guy in the audience for you to take back to your room?" I go, "And what? Rape me and cut me up into pieces? What are you talking about?" <laughs> I go, my audience is gay guys and soccer moms. Who am I going to fuck? And so... And I love Dave. I love Dave. I think he's a genius. I love him. I've known him since he was 18. But I just... It's just honestly, if, in my opinion, it's kind of a different world when you're a chick comic and a dude comic. And this this is... Thank you. Ooh, I heard some ladies be like, uh-huh, I just want to tune him out on some TV. This is, I think... And I, I'm sure you would agree with this. This is a central fact of this case is Trump went after you harder yeah. and is continuing to go after oh, you yeah. harder than any of the male celebrities. Yeah, Johnny who- Depp um, had the Pri- Pirates of the Caribbean franchise people just come in and have him take a photo with this Make-A-Wish kid uh, four days later and he was like hammered in the picture. I know that fucking game. And then, you know, every like I think Snoop got like a call. Uh, my friend Peter Fonda did a tweet and the Secret Service called him because I got worried for other people, right? So I would contact people that if Trump went for them or even one of the, you know, right-wing people that have a loud voice, like I emailed Peter and I gave him my lawyer's info and I said, you know, here's what the process is going to be like and here's what I learned. And he calls me back. He's like Mr. Easy Rider. He's kind of playing himself in that movie. And he's like, hey, bro. And I love when, like, you know, when you're a comic, guys always call you bro. And I'm called like Mr. Griffin all the time because I'm like masculine. But I like cock, just like Stormy. Anyway, um, not that much, not that much. That's 180,000 is above my limit. But anyway... um, um, so Peter Fonda calls me back and is like, hey, man, it's all cool. I talked to the Secret Service for like five minutes, man. It's cool. So I was like, oh, fuck. 
You know, because so that's what I found out. The other folks that, if you may have heard that, you know, someone decided that they threatened the president, I happen to know for a fact I'm the only one that got hauled in. And the other thing that was really tough is they, uh, the DOJ kept calling my First Amendment attorney every day, cha-ching, he's $900 an hour every day. So I knew they were trying to spend me to death at the same time. So that's why I talk about money a lot now. I um, bought a house for $10.5 million cash. And if you can't buy a house cash, then you can't afford it. All right, also, if you're a comic, you can be as funny as you want, but it's show business. Don't forget the business part. Save your money. All right, and don't give it to your family. They'll, they'll just hate you and turn on you. All right, so, um, you know, you try to fix them and help them and shit. It doesn't work. All right, so luckily I, I did have some money saved up so I could, like, pay for my own defense and stuff. But think about the DOJ calling my freaking attorney every day and get this shit. They wanted me to go, I'm not kidding, they wanted me to do a perp walk at the downtown LA jail in a jumpsuit and cuffs. And, you know, I say this in the movie, if I, if I can quote myself, um, I, actually, I actually got really infuriated, and that's one of the things that put the fire back in my belly, is I turned to my attorney and, you know, 900 bucks an hour, I didn't like to say this, but I straight up just started yelling over my dead fucking body. I don't care if I lose my house. I don't care how much money this costs. I will never let a young female comic, a person of color, a young gay person, see me doing a fucking perp walk so they can get the video so they can feel better. Because I didn't break the law, and everybody knows it, and I really fought for that. So... So that you've 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 spotted so you've identified certain moments through the call with Jim Carrey, the idea of the perp walk, things that motivated yeah. you, things that helped you rebuild your core self-belief. Because yeah. you are, I mean, it, it's amazing to me that, that Trump would go after you as a woman. Yeah. It's amazing to me in a, in a very different way. Well, I think that's why, honestly. I think there was a lot of ageism and misogyny. And I also have been kind of dealing with that in the industry. Like, since about, you know, I was 40, they were, I think there's a lot of guys who, I call them the old white dinosaur check signers. And that's why I don't have a distribution deal, probably. But anyway... Um, uh, you know, I think there's a, a lot of feeling, and some of the women in, in here, regardless of your feel, I think there's a feeling of uh, with the old school white guys, like the, like you know, like seven year old guys, that the audaciousness of a 58 year old woman wanting to still be in the game, they just they take offense to it. And I'm like, I just want to make people laugh. I just want to keep working. I don't want to retire. I have no desire to retire. And a lot of dudes like don't like that, or they think it's a lot of nerve or whatever. So that's something that I'm constantly fighting, and I know women in every field deal, deal with that. So that's why I try to make it a, a, a cross-the-board conversation. And, and it's, it's also amazing in a very different way that he would come after you, not a musician, not a filmmaker, a comic. And not just a comic. A comic Kathy with, Griffin, right, someone exactly. who talks truth to power. Yes. Someone who is unafraid. Someone yeah. who is. And this comes across in your, the way you're talking now. And in the movie, you are an astonishingly powerful woman. Oh, thank you. I think so. It, it radiates. It radi Even when you are dancing around the stage, you are dancing and you know exactly where you're putting your feet. I do. I am, when I do stand-up, I am literally gleeful. Like, I love it. I have what's called a burning desire. So I always tell young people if they come up to me and they say, you know, I, I might want to try stand-up to get a pilot. I'm like, mm, mm, mm. doesn't work that way. You have to have a burning desire to hit the mic. And so, um, you know, I had that anyway, and it's innate in me. And it's the only way I knew how to kind of get out of this bind. I 
didn't really have an alternative in my head. You know what I mean? I could hire like a crisis manager or something, but they wouldn't even take me. Our friends tell you, I called like five crisis managers. Even that woman who's portrayed on Scandal, the real one, I call her. And she's like, I'm, uh, I got a lot on my plate like that. <laughs> I know. And so I was like, all right. And then I was like, I'm not in a crisis. He's in a fucking crisis. So then I got all, you know, angry and stuff. And now, here's the thing. I don't have a fuck left to give. Not one. And it's liberating. When you came to start turning the experience into material, I know there were letters you were written and you talk in the movie about the, the letter of credible threats, the letter of threats that aren't so credible, and the letter that the stuff that's going on stage. Yeah. When you came to start putting stuff together, what was mm. the first experience? Did you do short sets somewhere to kind of work up the material? No, Had I'm you too written famous. it? Um, so. <laughs> No, I, I will say the one thing that I felt strongly about is, you know, I put my time in in the clubs, okay? So I'm not dissing clubs, but it took me a long time to get out of cl clubs. And the reason I do okay in clubs, but, you know, my style is very sort of storytelling and it's more like Sarah Silverman gave me this great uh, uh, compliment one time. She said, Kathy Griffin is a raconteur. And then I called her and I said, what's that? But anyway, um, she said, it's a storyteller, you dumb bitch. And I said, oh, I love you. Um, so she's under the gun now. The right wing is trying to say she's a pedophile. Like there's a whole online campaign to convince people Sarah Silverman is a pedophile. No, she's not. All right, so um, it's important, too, that we stick together. So one thing, because it didn't happen to me, I want to keep doing it. Like even though so many people, like I said, they wouldn't piss on me if I were on fire, I don't care. I still want to stick up for the Michelle Wolfs and the Samantha Bees because in any event, the president shouldn't be telling you what you should watch. So, so when you so talk to us about the process of how you started. Did you just book a theater and go right? I've got enough stuff to talk about. I, I called I'm my stand-up agent and, and I said, "This is an unusual way to, to, way to route a tour, but can we start thinking of countries where we know they hate Trump?" And in two weeks, I had like 15 countries yeah, in 23 cities. Turns out it's, it's almost all of them. Oh my god! I played the Sydney Opera House and the London Palladium. It was fabulous. Woo! And I know, and it was in, in my first show. I, I didn't do any practicing or anything. My act is very improvisa improvisational and tangential. And I've done 23 specials. So I have the I'm in the Guinness Book of World Records for more televised specials Woo! than any comedian, living or dead, male or female. And so Woo! I know. The first time, okay, so some time had passed, and it was traumatic, and, you know, I, like I said, I didn't leave my house for about two months because the, th the threats were really intense, and I got a ton of mail threats, like the MAGA bomber guy, like a ton of mail threats. Oh, old people fucking love mail, like Trumpers. They're not, they, they're sort of into online, but that's more the bot farms, but, like, the real live people, they love to fucking write a letter, and they'll, they'll write cunt with impunity. You fucking cunt. And a lot of times they'll be like, as a senior citizen, I hope your cunt gets burned. I'm like, whoa, grandma. <laughs> so... That was a real lesson. And, uh, <laughs> and um, there was definitely a time when I turned to my, my boyfriend, who was also my tour manager, don't judge, and, um, and I said, okay, you've been, you know, he was kind of like vetting the, the letters and all that stuff, and I said, okay, so it's, it's been, maybe it had been like three weeks. I said, just let me know, are there any death threats that are so over the top that they're actually funny? And he goes, oh, yes. <laughs> And that was so great. So I said, okay, can you sort out the ones that really are just, that you think I would be able to make funny or whatever? And so I end up reading one of them in the movie, and uh, the Trumpers are not into uh, grammar. <laughs> 
not a priority. Not a priority. They've got, they're afraid of that caravan. That caravan is very serious and very real. Um, so that's when I started to look around me. And as I've done my whole career, like before I was on television, my act has always been about whatever is going on in my life, right? So I thought, if you're a comic, you should say something no one else can say. And I want people to feel like if they come to one of my shows, if nothing else, you know, like I said, my shows are very imperfect because I change my material a lot and stuff. And I just want them at least to feel like, okay, I can't hear this set from any other comic. And the current show I did, they really couldn't hear it from any other comic. Um, that one I had down. Um, and then I started thinking, are there elements of this that are, A, I can make funny, but more importantly, like I said, relatable was the most important thing. Because I didn't want people to think this was just a showbiz thing, and that's something that the right wing likes to push. And we all know now it's not true. So it started with finding, believe it or not, funny death threats. And um, then just talking about like the FBI coming to your house a lot, it sort of became funny. Not to them, they're very serious. But like you can sort of joke with them a little bit. Also, sometimes they would come over and it'd be like the middle of the night. I'd have my pajamas on and I'd be like, what do you guys want? I'm cranky. Like that. It was They've never had like a client like me or a criminal or whatever. Um, But they, but I really have a lot of respect for them. So, and also when Trump started trying to almost decimate the entire FBI, I was like, ah, they're good. And he's fucking wrong. So I'm not anti-government at all, okay? I'm pro-regulations. I'm uh, pro-every amendment. Uh, You know, so, I mean, the first one's, there's a reason it's the first, in my opinion. But, you know, it it made me, it forced me to learn a lot, too, about, so like I said, I had to learn who all the Nazis were that were coming after me. And that's why I put the thing in my act about calling that fucking Charlottesville guy. Because to call the crying Nazi, I mean, maybe I should have said my name. Like, I'm... Now that I think about it, that probably wasn't that smart because he's out of jail now. But um, at the time, I felt very empowered. Uh, so, so I've had to learn all these kind of groups that come at me, and I've also had to learn how it gets manipulated, uh, particularly like on social media first, and people just believe this shit. Like, I'm old-timey. I read the Los Angeles Times, and it's a paper. I read WAPO, and it's a paper. I mean, all right, maybe it's on my iPad. But the point is, I, would, I was really genuinely shocked. Like, I didn't really know that real people think social media is news. Like, I didn't think anyone thought something they read on Facebook was news or a tweet. So they knew that. Like, their team knows that. And so they really knew how to maximize that before I came onto the scene. But now they've really perfected it. So, you know, for example, today the movie screened, and for about an hour, all my comments were so great. I was, like, like emotional and all this stuff. And an hour later, the bots start, right? And it's all the, you know, go back to Raqqa, you fucking cunt. And I'm like, oh, they're here. They're here. And they're motorized and shit. And so, you know. It's so just you've something. had to learn about that. I mean, I, I, I don't consider well, myself an expert. Well, I told you. I said, I'm afraid to work. take a picture with you because if you post it yeah. and you look at your timeline, you're going to get, like, a, an, an insane amount of hate. And I, I want to tell you that it's robots, but I am also protective of my friends. Like, I don't want to put someone in a position... Well, with Gwyneth Paltrow, I did. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> she got, like, a little sticker for her ass, right? All right, so, um... I put it on my uh, social last night. Check it out. All right, so... So I honestly became very conscious of that. So I became conscious of, okay, I now represent not the resistance in any way, but I now represent um, a a trigger for all the bots and all the actual Trumpers and stuff. And they are not letting go of that photo at all. I mean, I'm in the new NRA ad. I know. I'm in the new GOP ad. And um, the photo... What what do they say about you in the NRA ad? uh, If you don't get a gun, then you're going to let people like this, Kathy Griffin, run wild on the streets. And um, I do run wild sometimes. 
Um, I don't chop anyone's head off. I just jog. Can, um, could you not? Yeah, stay in shape. Oh, that's part of the other business. Stay in shape and always look your best. I know that sounds old-fashioned, but I go to meetings like overly dressed, and it's a bunch of bros in like cargo shorts. And if they ever give me shit, I go like this. I just came from a, a dinner party at the Rothschilds. But I still think like when you're a woman, you do. You have to work harder and jump higher. So I this is I don't mean to be like backwards, but when you're a chick, just fucking do anything extra. Stay in shape. Eat well. You know, get show up overdressed. And just at least don't give them another excuse to not hire you, right? So I always fucking show up like I'm ready to walk right onto the set. I get my hair and makeup done for every meeting. Oh, yeah, I take it seriously. I learned that from Joan. Joan Rivers had hair and makeup every day. Yes. And she taught me so much. And she went through so much fucking shit. And I just am so grateful to her and the women that went before me from Moms Maybelli to Phyllis Diller. And they were always, like, the only one. And, you know, I thank them. So... There was, a, there was a letter that you wanted... It wasn't a hate mail letter. Mm-hmm. It was a separate letter that you were advised to send to Trump that I heard you oh talk about. God, I think that was I on, forgot. like, a screener, but it wasn't in the movie. Oh, I know. OK, so here's the deal with the movie. The movie is 80 minutes, but the truth is my stand-up special that I taped, which nobody in television or streaming will buy or even look at a sizzle reel. And I just want to say, I've worked for every network. I have done... Super Bowl ads, I have made about $75 million over my career, and, you know, they fucking get 10%. And still, they... Okay, I'll tell you one quick story. So a few months after the photo, a friend of mine sort of played a prank, but it was also very educational. He called one of the old white dinosaurs, it's one of the heads of one of the big agencies, and he said, what do you think about representing Kathy Griffin? And this guy, who I've known for a long time, like, you know, every time I see him, like, for the last 20 years, he's been like, oh, your nose is too big, or you're too ugly, or whatever. And so he calls him, and he goes, what do you think about representing Kathy Griffin? She's actually more well-known now than ever. And he goes, Kathy Griffin, that's a life's too short situation. Which really, like, I thought, oh, that sucks. Like, if all the check signers think that, I'm kind of fucked. So um, my friend waited a month, and he called the same agent back, and he goes, what if I could bring you a client, and I told you that he's made $75 million over his career? And the agent goes, I would call that a priority client. And my friend goes, well, his name is Kathy Griffin. <laughs> and he still wouldn't take me. He's like, click. She's trouble. And we, we talked earlier on, when we, we spoke after the movie earlier today, about how, about the sort of the dynamic between your desire to blow the whistle on the dinosaurs who write the checks. Yeah. And also about the, the he fact... He tried to warn me to stop saying it. He, you're totally right, by the way. Well, like, he's I, like, stop saying that. It's, those dinosaurs still write the fucking checks. Well, I'm aware that you're here hustling... But I'm hoping for a gay dinosaur. Yeah, OK. <laughs> <laughs> then I'm in. Then I'm in. I'm in. I don't know that I tried to warn you not to so much as kind of queried the sense You said in... you're cringe, and I get that. You're, he's right. You know, he's, cause you're, you're, you're here trying to court the dinosaurs. I... You want distribution. You want to get on Netflix. I know, but, you know, i got to say, honestly, all the outrageous things I've done throughout my entire career got me to, like, a good place. So follow your heart, and when it comes to comedy, I really believe do what you think is funny. Not, like, when I, one of the reasons I have an issue with clubs is, like, I used to do clubs where you had to line up at the fucking Laugh Factory in San Monica, and then some guy named Mark Lana would Leno or something would give you notes. And I remember him saying this because there was all these like hacks doing like the same like the difference between dogs and cats and what's up with the traffic in New York versus LA. And then I go up there going, I saw Lindsay Lohan last night at a party and she stole a sweater. <laughs> crickets, crickets. And so, and so, 
So I was like bombing everywhere, right? And so then I started renting small theaters. So I did improv for many years at the Groundling Theater, and I found this loophole in their like um, Robert's Rules of Order or whatever, where if you're a, a Groundling member in good standing, which I was still a member, and there's one night that the theater is not being used for performance, you can rent it for free. So I started doing stand-up at the Groundlings Theater, which is a 99-seat equity waiver theater, because my kind of comedy, I think, is more appropriate for like people in permanent seats. Because it's like you have to kind of listen, right? Like I don't have these awesome like one-liners. And when people come up to me at airports, they're like, tell me a joke. I'm like, I don't, it's, it would take 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> so when I was getting that advice at the beginning of my career, it just didn't ring true to me. And I remember him saying this thing that I never forgot. He goes, um, you know what? If you're not getting a laugh every seven seconds, you're not doing your job. And all I could think of was I have to count. Like, I'm trying to be funny. I'm like, I'm trying to be funny and going like two, three, four. Oh, I almost said seven. And, you know, that just didn't work for me. So I had to get a bunch of other friends together. And at the time, it was called Alternative. And it was like me and Dana Gould and Jeannie Groffalo and some of the Ben Stiller kids and Andy Dick. Oh, God, I have stories about him. Oh, everyone has a junkie. And, um, and he's mine. And so, you know, we kind of got together. And then we started doing these performances. And I was so insecure that I would get the Groundlings for free. And I would do a show, and I would only charge a dollar, because I was so convinced nobody would ever pay more than a dollar to come see me. And I had three other comics, so I was like, well, no one's going to come to see me, so I better get three other real comics. And we would, I'd start the show, and I would do 15, and I would bring my mom's egg timer on stage and wind it. And at the end of 15 minutes, I had to stop, even if I was in the middle of a sentence, and go, ladies and gentlemen, Jeannie Garofalo. Then Garofalo would come out, and she would, she'd look at the timer, and the show was an hour. Like, so industry people have, like, ADHD or whatever. Or that's, they didn't call it that then. <laughs> it was just being an asshole. But now it's a very trendy. It's right out there with bipolar. Oh, I decided I might be bipolar and fluid if it will help me get a gig. <laughs> Pass it on. Um, see, that's offensive to people, but I can't, I, I, I can't, I think it's funny. I um, all right, so uh, that's what I tried to figure out. So I've always been trying to figure out, like, industry people don't want to go someplace for a very long time. So I thought, all right, I'm going to give them a show. And then I started asking non-comedians, because sometimes I started getting famous people to attend, but I still wasn't getting jobs. So I asked, like, I was banging Quentin Tarantino for a while, I don't know if you know this, but yeah. Yes! That's a South by exclusive, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah! Like, um, he's like a whack job, right? But he's um, really interesting. And so, and he loves to talk. So one time I gave him 15 minutes, but even him, I was like, ding. Um, and like, we'd have like guest stars, like Lisa Kudrow came and did 15 minutes and she doesn't really do stand up, but she had a funny story. So I tried to kind of mix in other people to go, as you guys know, there's all kinds of comedy, you know? And I, I'm not a comedy snob. I think it's great that like, you know, Jim Gaffigan and people could not swear once. I mean, Gaffigan did stand up for the Pope. Can you imagine? Oh my God, I would be burned at the stake. Burned at the stake. And, you know, and, and God love those, those folks that can do it. And there's, you know, comedians that will always be way more successful than I because they can do corporate gigs and, you know, play to everybody and stuff. And I just kind of ended up going a little more in the naughty, vulgar category. But honest, always honest, to my fault many times. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. 
The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, ladies and gentlemen, we don't have a lot of time left. I'm sure there are some of you with burning questions, if you're happy to I'd take love questions, to questions from the no, audience. Everything's on the table. So, uh, a hand up over there, gentleman with a beard. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yes. All right, yell. I can't hear you. Uh, hi. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. I was curious if you were still banned by the view. Are you no, still banned by the view? No, I got back on the view. view. But I've been banned and rebanned like a million times. <laughs> oh, but I'm banned from almost everything else now. Like, there's like three talk shows that will even have me. And that's kind of hard when you're trying to promote shit. But once again, I got to just like, the more I, like my tour grows $4.4 million. So when you say that... Then people go like, uh, oh, you know. And so I'm trying to always give people data. I do a shit ton of analytics because if I can't fight them with convincing them I'm funny or I'm accomplished or my body of work maybe meant something because it went out the window overnight, then I try to give them so many analytics that they just think of me as an earner. And I'm happy to be objectified as an earner if it gets me a job. And so I always love to meet with these folks. And whether it's The View or whatever, I'll, I say, I'm going to come on and it's a live show and who knows what I'll say because that's what that show is into. Now, there's other shows where you go, I'm going to be a saint. I'm not going to curse or I'm not even going to say heck. And that's what they're into. So I'm a shapeshifter. <laughs> that's a great answer. Thank you. Gentlemen over there. Did, did or have any of the major civil rights and civil liberties groups come to your aid or... No, that's a great question. He he asked, have any of the civil rights groups or agencies, did they ever come to my aid? And no. And I got to say, that was a tough one for me because I've done so much work and like I did a tie-in with the Trevor Project for my tour and I never even got like a hello from them. And I raised like $12,000 at a show for them. And I think it's important to always, you know, give back and we all have our causes and give to what you're passionate about. But, you know, I will say, um, I mean, you can make your jokes about Michael Avenatti, but man, I would have killed to have some lawyer on cable every day saying whether or not you like Kathy Griffin, this is not what happens in America. And you should think about what would this would happen to you in your real life if you lost your job over a freaking tweet. And then we're, you know, considered to be a member of ISIS, okay? Did I make that two words? ISIS. All right. So that was something that I have to admit. It just, I'm not going to even, can't joke about it because it truly hurts. Because I really did, I was hoping that somebody would be a significant public advocate. And to this day, no one has and no one is showing any interest. But I wish somebody would would shine a light on this a little bit because it is happening to other people. I mean, they stripped John Brennan of his security clearance for fuck's sake. So, you know, this this administration will do it to anybody. So I, I, I hope for that in the future and I'm going to be optimistic. Thank you. Great question. Another one over here. How does, it, how does it feel to be replaced by Andy Cooper? Oh, no, Andy Cohen. Andy Cohen, I beg your pardon. Oh, my God. That shit fest. What a nightmare. <laughs> oh. 
I hate watching every year because it's so bad. I oh, mean, this is the New Year's Eve chemistry. show. Yes. I'm, I'm not familiar with that name. Okay, okay gotcha. so I had done New Year's on, um, I did MTV Y2K, and it was me and Carson Daly, and this is how I get a lot of my gigs. So I was going to do like a 10-minute segment with Carson <sighs> Daly, and if everybody remembers Y2K, remember the computers were supposed to stop and all that shit? Well, I was like, I'll stand in Times Square. And so... Um, <laughs> Who's hiring? You'll pay for one coach ticket? Okay. Um, <laughs> um, that's another thing, just to, on a side note. Ladies, try to hold fast for your price. Know that the guy next to you who's auditioning is no joke. Like, when I hear that women make 87 cents on the dollar, I'm like, where do I sign? When you're a comic, it's five cents on the dollar. So try to hold fast for your price if you can. That's why I say do day jobs, you know, uh, keep your money, save your money, because if, you're not, if you don't stand up for your price, they'll just undercut you and undercut you. So the first two years I did New Year's on CNN, I didn't even ask to be paid anything. I was so fucking stupid. I know. And they started with um, 90 minutes, and then it ballooned to four and a half hours. So I called um, Jeff Fucker, Zucker. Um, although he goes, it's Zucker like hooker. What a douchebag. All right, so... And, you know, he was, a, oh, he was a horrible boss to me at NBC, so I knew his fucking game. Also, this guy shouldn't be running a news agency. This is the man that gave you the sitcom Emerald. Yeah, think about it. I remember everything. All right, so uh, anyway, in the eighth year, when the show had gotten to four and a half hours, and I was, like, really co-producing it, so I called him and I said, look, can you just pay me what I would make doing, like, a double at Harrah's or some shit? Or, like, you know, like, what I would make if I was doing stand-up. As you guys know, New Year's Eve is a hot night. And he was so livid. He kept saying, are you calling me personally? Are you actually calling me personally? I go, yeah, it's Kathy Griffin. Do you recognize my voice or not? <laughs> and so he then, he said, not only did he say no, he fired me on the spot. And it was, ironically, he goes, I could have Sam B in five minutes. I was like, okay, call her. She's got a, she's doing fine. But anyway, um, uh, then he called my agent and my publicist, and he said that I had threatened to not show up, which was not true. And then someone advised me, and they said, okay, do you really like doing New Year's with Anderson? And I said, you know, I really do. I really, really do. I enjoy it very much. I have so much fun. I kind of worked on it all year, like you write little jokes on cocktail napkins and shit. And they said, all right, if you can, if you call back Jeff and cry and beg for forgiveness, and I did. That's where I should have got my third Emmy. So I... (laughs) And I had to go, oh, Jeff, you made me. You made me. I wouldn't be anywhere without you. You gave me the opportunity. And so um, so anyway, he's like, all right, let's let bygones be bygones. And then he docked me 30% for even asking. I know. Well, now I'm out of there. But I love watching Anderson and Andy Cohen because, oh, the chemistry is electric. (laughs) Thank you. Fantastic question. And... uh, that's incredible. I can't believe it. That's what a devastating thing to hear. And well, yeah, but I will say, like, a lot of people make a big deal about CNN. I was never a CNN employee. Like, people will go to Trump rallies and they'll have uh, my image and they'll go, Kathy Griffin equals CNN equals ISIS. I'm like, I worked there one night a year for fuck's sake, you know? So um, the CNN wasn't the biggest part. Really, losing the tour was the biggest part. And then just going from, like I said, having worked with all these networks and cable uh, networks and then these guys that 
wouldn't even, you know, consider looking at, like I said, like a 90-second reel or anything, just persona non grata. And so that's kind of where I am currently. But once again, I'm staying optimistic. I need the power of the people. The power of the people. Thank you. We've done... Uh, is a question that gentleman, uh, the guy in the glasses actually was uh, pointing out. We both. Yeah. How can we buy your movie? Oh, how can you buy my movie? I don't know because I get. I guess like well, I don't know anything about movies, and um, I called J.J. Abrams because he was my groundling student when he was eighteen, and he used to be his dad's secretary, and so I always. I guess now he makes Lifetime movies or something. But anyway, <laughs> I. Um, I used to, when I was a teacher, I used to call him and go, "Get my coffee, bitch," and that was like this big famous director. So anyway. Oh, Oompa. JJ's So, So, um, uh, I said, you know, I think if you guys, if anybody wants to do a documentary, what, one thing I know about Unscripted, and I know, I know that platform or that genre very well, is you got to catch people in the moment. So, when I started even having meetings with someone like JJ, who was very friendly, he's used to, like, seriously, like the Star Wars world where you're in pre-production for a year, and so, and I was trying to explain to him, I was like, oh, no, honey, this is a down and dirty ghetto production, and you need one shooter at my house now to catch me, you know, rolling around in my own urine, because that's what my day is. And uh, he was like, oh, that was a quick meeting. Um, so so I uh, was hoping, I, I always said I would never do a non-scripted show again because it's so invasive, but for this, I thought it was important. So I had a bunch of meetings where mid-level folks would be really interested, and I'd feel confident, and then they would kick it up to the check signer, and it was a no, I don't even want to hear about it. So that's kind of where I am now. So I don't know what's going to happen to this movie. I don't know if distributors even came. I don't know any. I don't know how this works, but I hope people like it and laugh, and there's also a ton more footage. So my dream is, you guys know, um, did you guys know that Catfish started as a really good doc? Yeah. Oh, oh my God, it's like a, such a smart audience. All right, so it is. Oh, people are like, huh? All right, the, the aquarium? All right, so <laughs> I remember when Catfish was like a really interesting doc, and I didn't even know what catfishing is. Like, I don't really do like too much online stuff, right? So um, although I really up my social media big time, and I had to hire somebody to help me with that. And that also was very helpful. All right. Um, so uh, Catfish was a doc for a while. And then it became an MTV series. So honestly, my dream would be I have a stand-up special that's three hours and 20 minutes long. So, you know, HBO could run like three hours in a row like cliffhangers. Or I kind of wish somebody would think, oh, this could be a television show like Catfish became a television show. Or like um, that Leah Remini show, Scientology, where I could do a season one about my story, and then uh, the subsequent 17 seasons would be um, <laughs> would be about other people that have, have been in any kind of a situation where either their life changed overnight or could have a government aspect or not, but also but trying to make it funny as well. So that I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe somebody will buy it. I don't know. I would be maybe surprise. someone in this room. Maybe someone in this room. Maybe someone with a startup, maybe some angel investors, venture capitalists, something like that. Yes. Oh, you know, I I need seed money. That's the new thing the kids are all talking about. (laughs) I didn't know what seed money was. I did a speech about the First Amendment in front of um, uh, 1,000 venture capitalists, VCs is what they call themselves. Oh, my God, they're a riot. None of them have real jobs, and they're all on the phone all the time going, I'm going to invent an app. And I'm like, there's no dental plan for that. Um, I'm practical. I'm practical. And um, uh, that's what I thought was interesting. Like, it never occurred to me to try to get seed money. I just paid for the whole thing myself by boots on the ground working. Like, I never had my money make money. Or uh, Although, my, like I said, my fuck Trump mugs hopefully will take off. But, you know, I think the, the you know, if there are comics here, you, 
know the deal. Like, we have to work ourselves. We have to generate our own material, and we have to show up at every club, and you got to do 10 minutes at one and 20 at another, and you take every time you bomb as a learning lesson, and every time you audition is an opportunity to work, in my opinion. So, you know, I think that sort of thing keeps me going, but I don't know what's going to happen with... Uh, with the movie, but I didn't get seed money. Peltzer did. Peltzer got seed money for Goop. I found out, and they they uh, have a vagina steamer. She got sued. Any any any, uh, any other questions? Perhaps not directly related. Bouncing off that last piece of information, um, there is. Oh, sorry. Wait. Are you all? I feel like you're all. You've nominated a questioner. Is that? You <laughs> nominate the person that you're all nominating. Hi. Well, I don't oh. think he would have gone for Joan because, believe it or not, Joan was really good friends with his sister-in-law, Blaine. But I'll tell you, um, in one of my many dinners with Joan, she said to me, don't ever go after Trump. Don't make an enemy of him. And I was kind of writing it off. I was like, Joan, come on. That's, like, not my style. And, you know, as, as much as she was my idol and mentor in many ways, our styles couldn't be more diametrically op- opposed. I mean, she literally had a file cabinet of jokes. And, you know, I think that's actually why we were able to be friends. We were never, like, competitive in any way. Plus, she's a fucking icon. But um, I, I will say, I do have a bad habit. If someone says, don't go for someone, it makes me start thinking, like, hmm, how could I? So, um, do, you, do you think that was Joan secretly activating you? I, I like to think that, because a lot of people have actually asked me, what do you, how do you think Joan would have handled this? Now, the dirty secret about Joan is she actually was a Republican. And yet, she wasn't like a MAGA psycho. She just wanted to keep her money, because she worked her ass off for it. And uh, had to pay for those noses. And she would say, that's her bit. Um, <laughs> and... <laughs> And, um, you know, I, I think that my guess is that Joan, because she had a relationship with the family, my guess is that she would have stayed off them for a while, but eventually I don't think she could resist. I just don't think, I mean, she just had that thing in her, and she loved, you know, a campaign of shock and awe, as well as being funny. And, I mean, her live shows, I mean, until she, you know, was 80, were just so, like, heinous and inappropriate and fucking hilarious. Like, she would come out and start her show by telling all the, like, you could never do this bit now. And she would tell all the groups to leave. She would go, lesbians, get out, you never laugh. Get out! (laughs) And she'd go, Asian women, get the fuck out! You keep stealing our men, get out! Thank you for laughing! That shit is funny. It's offensive, but it's also funny. And she could pull it off. So, that's my guess, is there would have been a turning point where she would have had to just dive in. Thank you. Great, great question. Uh, we've probably got time for two more. Yeah, yeah. I was about, I'm trying to see one. All I can see Where's is men. Apologies. Uh, over there. There we go. Hi there. Hi. I'm a journalist, and so I was really curious uh, what you think your experience, um, what kind of precedent your experience sets for other people, um, particularly artists or comedians, who may want to make speak truth to power. Oh, thank you. So her question was, she's a journo, and she wants to know if other artists, how they can speak truth to power. Now, interestingly enough, I've gotten to know more journos in the last year and 10 months um, because I had uh, the marketing company in D.C. They suggested that I called a bunch of you guys on Deep Background, and I said... You know what? I didn't know what that meant. You know, off the record, deep background, and they had a very good idea. And they said, you know, there's all these journalists that may pick up your story, may not. They're busy because now the story became a political story more than a pop culture story. And I called. I mean, every journalist you've heard of. I mean, I now know everybody at like Wapo and Times and all those guys and all the heavy hitters. So I would call them and deep background, which, as you know, they would never ever violate. Like that is the main rule. And also, I really feel a kinship with journalism because you guys are under as much of an attack as comics. 
topics, if not more. And um, so I would call them because my uh, my advisor said, give them context so they don't just automatically think that you're like some psycho that wants to really decapitate people. So it was really interesting learning uh, how they have to navigate these waters as well. And, you know, one thing I thought was interesting is the year before Jeff Zucker fired me, he called me for the first time in all those years, and he said, um, okay, honey, I'll give you one Trump joke an hour. And I go, Jeff, you're the head of a global news agency. I, that's all people talk about is Donald Trump, especially there's a lot of comedy there. You know, this is before, you know, this is like I think he had announced his candidacy or whatever. And um, I th- I'd never experienced something like that. And I said, Jeff, you're not supposed to call a comic and tell them what not to say. You don't hire Kathy Griffin and go tone it down, you know. So I got into really great conversations with a lot of journalists and what they go through. And I will say, I, I, it's shocking to me when he has these whatever they are, rallies, and he points to the journos, and I feel like, oh my gosh, those women seem so vulnerable to me. And I, t- you know, I talked to Katie Turr, and she had to have security walk around every time. And even the Republican never Trumpers, like the Rick Wilsons and the Steve Schmitz, they're like under fire at these rallies because they feel like they're turncoats and stuff. So it is a really tenuous time, and that's one of the reasons I'm being so loud and like not giving a fuck because I'm afraid one of you guys is going to get fucking shot because I've been threatened with it so many times that it's you know. It only takes one. So I think it's important to tie the two topics together because, A, they're the First Amendment, of course, but also, um, you know, it's, it's rampant. Like, somehow this administration has been effective vilifying all journalism, like all of it across the board. And the idea that he was in bed with, like, AMI media is so pathetic, but that's, that's the new normal for him. So I've just become, I have even more respect. I was raised up on papers, like I came from that kind of family, but I have more respect than ever. And how they sit in that room with Sarah Fuckabee, I do not know. <laughs> I do not know how they hold their temper. Thank you. We, so, and uh, thank you for your work. Thank you. Final question. Do we, do we have uh, a loud woman Who's for a final lady? question? Who's the lady who's got a question? Okay. Yeah! Woo! Go, girl! Follow your friend, Kathy. Oh, thank you. Uh, I've won. I've won. Um, if you had one minute to tell off Trump, what would you say? Oh, I've thought about this so many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the questions in my interrogation, which actually caught me off guard, is um, one of the feds said, what would you say to the president if you walked through that door right now? And I am not kidding. I thought there was a 50-50 chance that that fucking fool would like, be like, hey, let's go fuck with that bitch from ISIS, Kathy Lee Gifford, you know? And so, um, and so I would just make fun of him for his gunt and how, um, like, I've done a bunch of gigs with him, and um, I would make fun of how aggressively stupid he is. He's like Britney Spears, like, proud of it. Um, and I would also ask him state capitals because during the, yeah, during the debates, they would ask him about policy and they would just let him off the hook when he would give these non-answers. And I said at one point, and I was actually calling some people that were moderating those debates, which they really loved hearing from me. And I was saying, like, seriously, get the, like, the questions from Are You Smarter Than the Fifth Grader in that show? Because I think the American people need to know this fucker doesn't even know state capitals. Like, he doesn't know, like, when they made um, Rick Perry the uh, energy cabinet me- uh, head of energy, and Rick Perry was like, I'm in charge of the nukes. Oh, I was on Dancing with the Stars. So I would ask the simple, like, I would, I would ask him to name uh, the Supreme Court 
court uh, justices in order in which they were appointed, which I can do, and I can do it backwards, because my dad used to drill that into our heads. So he can't even do that. All he knows is Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh. So um, I, I, that's one thing I would do. And then I would make fun of his physical appearance, and I would be brutal, because he's so brutal, especially to women, about our appearance. And I would talk about, who can fuck you? That must be horrible to look behind your guns and see your fucking face and your mushroom dick, because Stormy told me it's a mushroom lick. It's fucking... Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, and everyone, everybody here, it is your duty and responsibility to go out in the world and make sure that this movie gets it picked up. It screens again Wednesday evening. Screens again Wednesday here at South by. Please join me in thanking Kathy Blissett. So that was Kathy Griffin. The people outside queued for hours and hours to get into her, to be in the 300 or so that were invited into Esther's Follies uh, to witness that conversation. I found it extraordinarily enjoyable. Um, regular listeners to the show will have heard me uh, exercise all of my gears as an interviewer to try to get to the nub of what I wanted to talk about. Um, Kathy is a formidable talker, as you've heard. She's very, very funny and um, obviously has compartmentalised her experiences into very funny and prescient stories about what they felt like. So it was kind of my job as an interviewer to try to uh, run with those, let her feel comfortable in the room telling those stories, and then try and get into a deeper gear and try and get to some some stuff that she maybe hadn't said before. I'm really proud of this interview, and uh, it was very exciting to be a part of this whole experience. I cannot recommend the movie enough, and uh, there'll be more information about it in the show notes. So that is that for this week. Um, I may not even post-amble at you. I feel like I've got lots to talk to you about. Ordinarily, if you're new to the show, I would have a little post-amble where I um, discuss the last week or so. Um, I've got loads to tell you about South by Southwest, but we have three more episodes coming at you over the next few weeks and months with Matt Bronger, Daily Show correspondent Roy Wood Jr. and one of the godfathers of alt-comedy, Eugene Merman. Those are all coming soon, as well as brilliant, brilliant episodes already in the can with British comedy stars Andy Osho and Chris Addison. And uh, when we knock out the next South by One, I will talk to you at length about zipping around Austin, Texas on a motorised scooter and some of the exciting people, places and things that I experienced there. But for now, let's leave that where it is. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please follow Kathy Griffin on Twitter at Kathy Griffin. And uh, we took a picture together, which I will, which will accompany this episode. She did warn me at the time that as soon as you uh, connect yourself to Kathy Griffin on social media, the bots come for you. So um, this is my final communication. <laughs> Thanks for everything and goodbye. Um, I really recommend you seek out her stuff online. I really, really recommend properly getting hold of one of her specials and just diving into it, even though the uh, a lot of the celebrities that she is sort of famous for doing, you know, celebrity takedowns and stuff, aren't necessarily known to audiences in the UK. You don't need to know who they are to understand the context, the rhythm, the pace, and her very funny and very vicious jokes. So... Really, if this is if you're discovering Kathy Griffin, please dive in. There's a, a huge amount to to watch and to find out about. And if you're uh, very familiar with it, then I hope I did your fandom justice. 
Thank you very much for listening. A huge thank you to everyone at South by Southwest, to Esther's Follies, to Charlie Sotello and Danny Sweet, to Marty the Sound Man, I'll put his information in the uh, in the show notes as well, to Nathan Wood, as ever, for editing and uploading the show, Rob Smouton for the music, Peter Dobbing, podcast consultant, and that'll do for now. Jake Crossland as well, who also logs the episodes for me. Um, that's all the thank yous uh, you will have heard on the little drop-in ad. I'm on tour at the moment. Uh, go to comedianscomedian.com slash tour to find out more about what we're up to. And I will speak to you soon. Oh, I'm going to go and have a lie down after that one.